0: nvbdc.org. It was established to certify both service-disabled and veteran-owned businesses. You'll find out how they can help your business by going to nvbdc.org. We want to thank Legal Help for Veterans. Legal Help for Veterans fights for veterans' disability rights all across the nation. You can reach them at 800-693-693. Four eight zero zero, or on the web at legalhelpforveterans.com. We're going to squeeze in today's program. It's my last of the year. Uh, a couple of interesting interviews. Uh, one with a Coast Guard um, <clears throat> enlisted, and then an officer, Carolyn Walsh, who wrote a book and has uh, had some real struggles in the Coast Guard. I want to tell you about a cool program that leadership program that the bush center down in texas is offering to veterans uh this is it's a free of charge kind of thing and then finally i've got somebody on who's going to explain what is all this camp lejeune water advertising by the lawyers about what what did congress do so uh i think you're going to enjoy all of these if i can squeeze them all in we want to welcome to veterans radio today carolyn walsh carolyn's a coast guard uh Alum, Uh, She is a veteran not only of the Coast Guard, but went and did work with the CIA and is currently a Ph.D. student at University of San Diego um, in the the field of leadership. So we've got a lot of areas to talk about. Carolyn, welcome to Veterans Radio.
2: Hi, Jim. Thanks so much for having me
0: well this is going to be interesting you wrote a book called fairly smooth operator my life occasionally at the tip of the spear and it really brings up all kinds of important issues to talk about and and we're going to make sure we cover them all but i want to set this up a little bit uh, you grew up in ohio you went to college at uh, california state university and picked up your bachelor's in psychology i think you played uh, college soccer if i read that right yeah, and, and in 2009 uh, like uh, any good college student uh, who graduated you said oh crap what do i do now <laughs> and, and you looked around and said i'm not exactly sure what i'm uh, uh educated to do with my psychology degree uh, but some friends of yours were talking about uh enlisting the united states coast guard and that sort of drew you into that path uh, do i have the story right so far
2: Yes, that's that's what happened.
0: And you didn't come from a military family. This was sort of an accidental enlistment because of friends and and the economy, if you will, uh, more than anything else.
2: Right. Yes. Except for you know, grandparents in that generation that all served in you know World War Two. I did, Yeah, I didn't have any military family members.
0: So uh, I think you've kind of viewed this, and maybe your uh, the couple of other girlfriends who who joined up at the same time from Cal- California State University kind of viewed this as a transition to uh, the work world. But it wouldn't be all that much because you know we weren't uh, Coast Guard's not in war, and they don't do any of those kinds of things. So, what was your image of the Coast Guard before you went in?
2: Before I went in. I mean, I felt like it was a, a pretty blank slate from, I think my friends and I, we looked up like the Academy website, like the US Coast Guard Academy, and saw things there, made a lot of assumptions, um, that were not what it was like to, to come in the enlisted route. Um, so at the time, yeah, I mean, I saw them as a service that was kind of spotted around the coast and, you know, focused on rescues, um, safety, so the environment, so all that was interesting to me.
0: Yeah, I I think there's a lesson learned here for people thinking about joining the service is to make sure you really have an understanding of what that particular service does and what you're getting into. Uh, Recruiters are known to like maybe fib a little bit, but you were this fit athletic surfer runner girl from California, and you thought, well, this is going to be a pretty straightforward assignment uh, in, I love the ocean, and I love being on water, uh, but it really wasn't, you didn't really have a lot of in-depth about what the assignments might be, I take it.
2: Right, the assignments and the culture, too, just, um, yeah, not didn't have any, like, clear picture of what it might be like
0: and and i think everybody who goes into service uh during our time we have uh, the good the bad and the ugly uh there there are things we love doing there're things we okay we'll put up with doing and things we really hate doing and certainly in your book fairly smooth operator you lay those out uh for the the reader um, that the talk us through a little bit about uh sort of that initial basic training and why did you go in as an enlisted versus trying to go the officer route
2: sure so we looked my friends and i um yeah we looked at the officer route and we saw the lengthy application period we saw that you know they only do interviews at certain times of the year and we were graduating in may and we were we were ready to go into something you know we and playing soccer surfing, you know we didn't know what to do with ourselves on a break um, so we're, we're like okay like yeah we're going to enlist we're going to learn about the Coast Guard, then people will have more respect for us if we go into this officer position so it seemed it seemed like a good step to to understand more about the Coast Guard before we you know committed to being managers in it
0: and you had an interest was it right from the beginning in terms of uh, uh, intelligence? Uh, go, going to school for that and, and having assignments on that, or did that evolve after you uh, uh, enlisted?
2: That was before. yeah. So I saw the Intel billet and I had studied psychology and I thought, oh, this would, this would be a great way to apply you know what I've learned in psychology and build those skills in the real world instead of you know in the classroom.
0: Well, again, this is one of those things you got. You read it. The recruiter tells you something. Hmm, is it really going to work out that way? And we'll talk about that a little bit. But you ended up serving five and a half years uh, active duty and enlisted, and then went back uh, and served a couple of years after going to officer candidate school and being in the reserves. But but one of the bad parts uh, of the uh, enlisted period was how long it took you to get to the intel school. Tell us a little bit about that.
2: Oh, yeah. So I joined in 2009 and went to a small boat station. And, and the Coast Guard, most of the time, the idea is you go to a station or you go on a ship and you are you don't have a rate or a job for about six months so that you learn a little bit about the Coast Guard. I think it's also like a bit of a holding period while the schools open up. So that's a, the idea. Uh, however the intel rate, and then another rate, the marine science technician rate, um, which my friends are going into, had an incredibly long wait list for school. So, there were a number of people during that time who, you know, hit three or four years uh, without having a job and, you know, building up their career um, through whatever unit they were at. So, they got qualified and everything they could, um, but they couldn't, they couldn't move up the ranks past E3. So... It was an interesting time. I don't know if they still have that problem or if they've kind of, you know, sped things up a little bit in the schoolhouse. Um, that's how I ended up as, as a non-rate for a couple of years.
0: Yeah, it was like three years before you were able to get in there. And, and, and again, most uh, folks who serve Army, Navy, what have you, would would be basic and then move their way right to to their uh, A school. But um, because the Coast Guard's so small. Uh, those positions are pretty limited and, and I think you run into that kind of problem. So that really uh, uh, was part of the bad part of this, but part of the ugly part of this was um, you ended up at a small boat station in Montauk uh, that was pretty isolated, pretty small, and, and uh, it, it had a very toxic uh, work environment. Um, that really was uh, part part of the ugly nature of this uh, uh, enlistment period tell us a little bit about how you got to montauk and and what the problems were
2: uh, so yeah i got to montauk you know after boot camp um i remember the first day you know somebody picked me up i took the train in and i saw him pick me up from the train station and he was on his way out of the unit and I just remember he just warned me it's just like whatever you do like in the winters find something to do and don't get in trouble and I was like okay <laughs> so so that was an interesting introduction a lot of warnings there and then um, in the first weekend the, the the chief had gotten relieved from the unit you know as, so as I'm coming in this huge um you know, investigation was going on with the, the lead person at the unit. So I walked right into that um, and then just noticed that, uh, yeah, it was just this, this toxicity. And because of the way people rotated out, you know, um, kind of staggered, it never had like that clean slate to really be like, okay, we're going to do things differently. Like there was always this lingering, you um, just, just really, you know, ugliness more than, um, you know, just egos, but really treating people really poorly.
0: Yeah, and one of the things that you sometimes learn leadership by what not to do, and you got a lot of what not to do in Montauk. Um, how many, how many uh, coasties were were at this uh, small boat station?
2: There were only about twenty, twenty-five. Yeah, um, it, it was very small very small unit and uh our leadership was across the sound so the main unit you know you couldn't even drive there <laughs> you know, like a boat ride away so, so
0: well re- it I really know. uh demonstrated sort of the isolation of this uh station and and how a team once a team gets isolated um you, you know bad stuff can happen with nobody knowing and that's kind of what what you ran into wasn't it
2: yes yeah exactly
0: Now, we're going to come back to that uh, sort of those problems a little later on here, but I want to move on to at least hit some other highlights that maybe weren't, uh, you know, maybe in the good category, not necessarily in the bad, but certainly not in the ugly. Um, You had two, I'll call them uh, unusual assignments that from the outside people would look at and say, man, that's where you wanted to be. Uh, one of them was in Key West and, and one of them was off to Gitmo. Um, not sure anybody wants to be there, but, but mm-hmm. talk to us a little about those two assignments and what things you learned or didn't learn about, uh, serving in the Coast Guard and leadership at those assignments.
2: So the Key West position was a Joint Interagency Task Force South, which is a counter drug task force that covers all of Maritime operations that we're doing with U.S. military and Coast Guard forces, um, basically all the Caribbean, Pacific. Um, so fascinating place to be, topic-wise, and just learned a ton about all the other military services and their cultures and their people because we were all in the watch floor together. Um, you know, saying the wrong acronyms to each other had really great leadership that you know kind of helped flatten out the hierarchy so we could really speak truth to power and you know I was doing intel at the time so it was you know if I had a something I was you know had assessed you know and it was counter to what we were planning I was allowed to bring it up and we could have a discussion and um kind of check our biases and um really have like rich discussions on what we were doing and the best way forward um so it was a very interesting, like cross-cultural, you know, in terms of the military services experience and then, like, uh, really, really great leadership.
0: Well, and, and it was, because it was cross-cultural, it's this team relationship that sounds like it was uh, developing, uh, which a lot of, a lot of life, a lot of work life is about working with teams of different stripes and types. Um, and, and it sounded like uh, in reading "Fairly Smooth Operator" by Carolyn Walsh.
2: Yeah, it was, it was hilarious and very smart to just be like, "This is where I'm going to be." So if you're going to be sloppy junk, don't be here because I don't want to see you. But if you want to come say hello and chat, you know, out of uniform, like come by. Yeah, it was it was really great.
0: Yeah, great it is, little leadership it, thing it, is it is a clever, uh, approach. Un- unfortunately, there was also, uh, this may have been your first, uh, um, run-in with, uh, military and veteran suicide, but I think, the, uh, there was also a, uh, you, the, you lost a lieutenant, uh, during that, uh, particular billet, if I recall. Yes. Yeah. We lost an um,
2: early, great Navy, Navy lieutenant there. Yeah.
0: And talk to us a little bit about how you, you internalized that uh, experience.
2: So he was, um, just a really great person, really cared about his team, um, a lot of servant leadership, you know, making sure we were good. Um, but he was, he was on his way out. His contract was up. He had been on submarines for a while. Um, And he was in QS, which is a little isolated. You know, when you're leaving the military, um, it's hard to get interviews in general because you're trying to time your leaving with what, you know, employers want. So that's really tricky, and it's even harder when you're isolated. Um, He had been isolated, I think, from his family for a little bit, Um, so... Like, from my perspective, I just thought as, you know, really a struggle with that transition process. And, you know, maybe there's other stuff going on as well. Um, but the fact that it came up, you know, as he was leaving and he really wasn't able to communicate what he wanted to do or where he was going to live. Um, I think because he was a smart guy, people trusted, like, oh, he'll figure it out. But, um, if he, if you asked him those questions, like, he, he didn't really have a plan or support system. So, um I just yeah, became really passionate about about the military transition process and helping people have a vision and support and a plan when they're getting out so that they have you know a little bit of a direction to go in and some hope
0: and and you found that uh, the way I was reading it is you found that as while a horrible situation you also internalized a little bit about like I got to be thinking about my future, I have to not find myself in that same spot of being transitioning out and with nothing to do am i overreading that
2: um no not over reading it definitely yeah i mean i definitely um like care about it with my peers and then also yeah put a lot of pressure on myself to to figure out what's next so so that like hopelessness you know um
0: while in service and certainly commendable and more people should do this is uh you did work on a master's degree from penn state i believe
2: Yes, so yeah, that was a good that came out of the Montauk unit was that I enrolled in a master's program um, and had some time while I was there to start it and finish it once I was in Key West. Yep.
0: This is just a portion of the interview that I did with Carolyn Walsh. Um, She went on to uh, become a CIA analyst uh, for a few years in Washington, D.C. She had an interesting um, assignment to talk about there. She also talked about in the podcast interview that's up on uh, veteransradio.net, the sexual harassment problems that she encountered in her service while with the Coast Guard. Uh, We don't have time to get into it all. That's why we use the longer format uh, on the podcast. And we really encourage you to uh, go take a look at that. Um, There's a very substantive discussion about um, that uh, issue of sexual harassment. And uh, Carolyn Walsh's book um, is definitely worth reading to get her view, a better understanding of the Coast Guard and some of the pluses and minuses. Uh, that book is Fairly Smooth Operator, My Life Occasionally at the Tip of the Spear. She's also a comedian, uh, so there is some funny stuff in the book as well as she works on her PhD. We're going to move now to talk a little bit about uh, some of our uh, leadership uh, issues at down at the Bush Center. But before that, uh, let's have a few words from our sponsors.
1: Military veterans touch everyone's life. I'm guessing right now you're thinking of a veteran, a close friend, relative, Maybe it's you. Even the toughest of us sometimes need help but don't know where to turn for support. You don't need special training to help a veteran in your life. Even small actions can make a world of difference. If you know a veteran in crisis, please call the Veterans Crisis Line, 800-273-8255. 800-273-8255. A message from the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs.
0: If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at one 800 693 Four They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims. Their number again, one 800 We want to welcome to Veterans Radio today, Matt Amidon. Matt is back to, with us on Veterans Radio. He is the Director of Veterans and Military Families at the George W. Bush Institute down in Texas. Matt, welcome back to Veterans Radio.
1: Hey, thanks so much for having me again, Jim, and uh, look forward to chatting with you about... Uh, Really, at its core, what is advancing our democracy through compelling leadership of integrity. So excited to talk to you today.
0: Well, this is a very interesting program. It's in its, uh, I think, fifth class uh, at the Bush Institute called the Stand to Veteran Leadership Program.
1: No, absolutely, and I appreciate the opportunity, and I think your, your listeners will consequences of an all-volunteer force, and and one of those things is this topic we all talk about called the civil Divide, which is just necessarily that at any one time, about less than 1% serve our nation, and uh, right now there's about 18 million vets in the U.S., and all that means is that the all-volunteer force is becoming more of a family business and more regionally focused, and so... We, a number of years ago, five years ago now, decided to do something about the civil mill divide, um, all under the understanding and assumption that every year, regardless really of the chapter in our national history, and as you all well know, we left Afghanistan recently and that debate will be ongoing uh, for many, many years, but the Department of Defense every year transitions out 200,000 service members and their families. And so the opportunity for this nation to leverage just the raw leadership talent in our all-volunteer family is such an incredible opportunity. And so in doing so, we, we decided we can write and do op-eds and blogs about the Sid-Mill Divide or we can get after it. And I think what you'll see is the Stand to Veteran Leadership Program brings in every year about 50 scholars from a wide and diverse range of backgrounds, but optimally about half civilian who never served and half veteran and or military family who did serve, all under a consistent leadership framework uh, designed to leverage veteran and military family talent in our businesses and our communities. And so, you know, Jim, I, I honestly think there's not much like it in the country. And I really just encourage uh, your listeners, uh, those who have served or those who never served, but really want to break down the signal divide and leverage the immense leadership in that community to apply. And applications are open at BushCenter.org until January of next year.
0: Yeah, It's a very interesting idea. When it was brought to my attention uh, by the Bush uh, Center, I said, man, we got we got to talk about this um because i have not seen any program like this in the country now matt and i have talked in the past about the whole recruiting problem that we have in this country and some ways to in which to solve it but this works the other end of the funnel if you will this works the end where folks are transitioning out or or have been out for a while you've got civilians who don't understand the military and maybe some of the military folk who don't understand the civilian folks so you put a fifty-fifty mix in the room. What are you trying to accomplish?
1: You know, it, it's great that you you bring that up. After uh, four very successful years, we have 176 scholars, all really committed and inspired leaders who know each other as individuals, as an and as a network. And I think to your to your point, and to answer that question precisely. What we're really hoping to achieve is is, um, a network, sort of a collaborative and a community of committed leaders who are just absolutely focused on getting after some of the harder problems in our nation today uh, by leveraging the leadership in our veterans and military family communities. And in doing so, to your point, you know, if we, again, are wildly successful in the next 10 years, well, gosh, 176 scholars will turn into a couple thousand and just think about the network of network effects there. So we're, we're really excited about this program. It's, it's one of our flagpoles.
0: Well, this is at the George W. Bush Institute. Um, President Bush has a, gr- a reputation. The Bush uh, Institute has a reputation. It really allows you to bring world-class presenters forward, to these scholars so that they can hear and they can discuss some of the leading issues of our time talk to us about some of those types of folks who uh, have come and presented to the scholars
1: oh absolutely and and to your point these are these are leaders who've Faced tremendous challenges And I think You know you and all of your listeners And we all know in the absence of leadership You just got to lead so It certainly starts with the President And Mrs. Bush and their inspiring Leadership and and genuine commitment To those who've served And their families Uh, we've Welcomed everybody from um, Former Secretary And General James Mattis uh, General Pete Pace We've had former secretary of the VA, Bob McDonald, who also was the CEO of Procter and Gamble. Uh this year we welcomed Alex Gorsky, the former CEO of Johnson & Johnson. Another one, um General Al Flowers, who I just commend anyone to look up his his trajectory and leadership, um, this amazing four-decade career in the Air Force, and he started off as a sharecropper's son. So when you look at the ability uh, to lead over time and to lead through challenge, um, one of the remarkable things I get to do, Jim, is sit in the back of the room for four years and hear these people speak time and time again. And I can tell you uh, it's the best part of the year. It certainly inspires and re-energizes anybody who who hears from them. But also we've welcomed in uh, some elected officials as well. Uh, Not only do we look for sort of the inspirational presentation of leadership, but we want to talk about the candid, you know, problems and issues, both individual and systemic, facing uh, some of our veterans and military family members. And so uh, we've brought in folks from the House Veterans Affairs Committee, uh, friends from academia to include uh, Vice Chancellor Mike Haney from Syracuse University, our dear friends up there at the Institute for veterans and military families to not only uh, inspire this network of leaders, but also to inform them about kind of the latest and greatest uh, barriers and opportunities to what we want to do and, for years.
0: Well, this is a great opportunity for up and coming leaders to get in the room, rub elbows with other like-minded individuals, have a common leadership philosophy for going forward, but also to, you know, rub elbows with uh, secretaries and uh, generals and ceos uh, a, a, an incredible network opportunity uh, the application process is open through uh, january 18th 2023 at midnight so the window open isn't all that large so don't put it off um uh, where is the uh, where can i find the application what website do i go to to find the application uh matt
1: you come to bushcenter.org and and you will see the uh come to bushcenter.org or search for stand to veteran leadership program and it will take you right to the application page on our website and, and again I, I thank you so much you know if you if you served in uniform if you've never served but are a committed, you know, American and you want to advance our democracy and lead at the community and organizational level, you are the perfect applicant for VLP.
0: Now, let me put some time frame around this. This was for folks who think, well, geez, there's no way I can do this. I've got a pretty busy life. This is one of yeah. these executive leadership kind of opportunities that uh, you shouldn't pass up. And it's sculpted for people with a full, enriched, busy life. Um, This goes from July of 2023 to November of 2023. It's a couple of days uh, a month commitment, and uh, some of that commitment is in Dallas, as I understand it.
1: Truly a network that is leaders of leaders that are going to solve great problems for us in, in in the next few years.
0: So if you're sitting there thinking, man, this is something I'm interested in, but my company will never let me go, my family will never let me go, first off, it's free. <laughs> Everything's yep. paid for by the, by the Bush uh, Institute and their donors. That's right. And this is the kind of leadership program training you're not going to get anywhere else. And you're, if you discuss it with your employer or you discuss it with your spouse, they're going to tell you wow, apply, this is a great opportunity if you get a shot at it. So don't get scared off by the time commitment because it's been shaped in a way to uh, deal uh, with the life of busy executives, and certainly there's no cost implication, so that shouldn't scare you off either. Again, we have a longer format of this interview up on our podcast at uh, veteransradio.net. You may want to listen to that, but certainly think real hard and jump on this opportunity if it fits for you. We want to welcome to Veterans Radio today an attorney, uh, Mike Cox, who some people may know. We'll tell you a little bit why you might know him, but uh, Mike's a uh, Marine veteran. Mike, welcome to Veterans Radio.
3: Hey, Jim, it's great to be on uh, with a great American on a great show.
0: Well, thanks we've been doing veterans radio now going into our 20th year so uh, we're really kind of uh, trying to celebrate this upcoming year and we're glad to have you on and let me set this up we want to talk about what's going on uh, in the camp lejeune water contamination exposure there was a law passed uh, this year and there's a lot of activity going on uh, so that people know about their rights but before we get into that that's what the program's going to be uh listeners uh, you might n- remember the name, Mike Cox, if you're in the state of Michigan area. Mike was the attorney general for for the state of Michigan for eight years, from 2003 to 2011. But what you might not remember uh, is that he was in the Marine Corps from 1980 to 1983. He got out, used the GI Bill, and went to the University of Michigan to get his undergraduate degree and then ultimately his uh, law degree in 1989. But, Mike, before all, before we get too far into this, um, your family has quite a history of uh, service to the country. Um, tell us a little bit about the other members of your family who have also served.
3: Sure, sure. Uh, and, and thanks for that, Jim, because uh, we're all creations of the people around us, right? And so my dad, uh, John Cox, was an immigrant, uh, legal immigrant in 1949, came here with $20 in his pocket and was a journeyman carpenter. And lo and behold, uh, soon after uh, he got here, within like five months, you know, North Korea. What's now we we now call North Korea invaded South Korea, and so in those days, immigrants had uh, selective service numbers that made it really easy for them to be drafted. And so within nine, eight, ten months of uh, crossing the border here. Uh, my dad was in Korea. Uh, it was a couple different units. So. Welcome,
0: welcome to the United States, but I, I, I <laughs> yes, suppose yes. it's one way to make the melting pot at work. So. Uh,
3: but, but i got to tell you, uh, as he told us so many times when we were kids growing up, it was so much better than going back to Europe, which was still wiped out by World War II. And uh, when he came to Michigan, when he came to Detroit, uh, he literally thought the streets were paved with gold, and he was more than willing so many other Americans have for you know 240 plus years now to fight for our nation and to defend the ideal. So he ended up in Korea. Uh, he was uh, you know on number on a number of infamous battles of sorts uh, including one in on old Baldy. Uh, he eventually uh, during his two years to get to be a staff sergeant he was in a heavy, heavy weapons. Uh, platoon and saw uh, unbold amounts of combat and came back and you know uh, settled down Detroit and and raised a family and and that was the background for me that I that is funny uh, I ended up in the Marines but I, I wanted to become a Green Beret and, and at the recruiting station on the way in the Marines had the first door so <laughs> I, I I started looking at their uh, pamphlets and then it was pamphlets right in 1980 and and. And the gunnery sergeant came out there and, and nabbed me. But since uh, my time in the Marines, I'm, I, I'm very proud to say that two of my children, uh, you know, are, have served their nation or are serving their nation. So my oldest daughter, who's now 39, uh, was a corporal in the Marines. So she was with the 9th Communications Battalion uh, uh, and in think uh, Camp Fallujah for 13 months from 2004 to 2005. Uh, obviously as a, a, woman in communication, she wasn't directly in combat, but a, a number of her, uh, co-friends and colleagues were killed. And, and so she did her four years is very proud of that. Just like me, uh, uh, she has a Marine Corps tattoo. I'm not, I'm not crazy about that for herself <laughs> or me, but, uh, and very proud and should be very proud, uh, cause we're taping this, uh, uh, you know, the day, on the even Marine Corps birthday, we'll, we'll both celebrate, text each other. Uh, and then we, we have one wayward. I have four kids. We have a, I have a wayward son that you know, Jim.
0: Absolutely. Uh,
3: who went to U.S. Naval Academy, he just graduated this year, did very, very well, but he made one major mistake. He didn't go in the Marines. So he's, uh, he's a surface warfare officer. He's gonna, he's tra- he's in destroyer school right now. And he wants to be he wants to be a seal, but he's got to do a, a tour at sea first. Uh, and his name's Rory. Very proud of him. And I have a couple. I have a nephew in an air cav right now in Fort Campbell. My nephew Brendan. Excuse me. My nephew uh, uh, Patrick and his brother Brendan was with uh, uh, the, the Marines. They did two tours in Afghanistan. One of, one when it was very uh, a, a lot of combat, and the second time around. Uh, it had a different mesh, mission in the Helmand province, but from the humble beginnings of a humble immigrant, my dad, uh, uh, I like to think our family has come to value, uh, you know, what the defense of our nation means, as you know, given that, uh, your spouse was a brigadier general. So it's, uh, I'm very, it's a very, I'm very proud of that family background. And, and so I, I'm that much, I'm, so I'm of course honored and proud to be on your show. The week of uh, veterans day
0: well i'll tell you it, it is a, a great a family tradition that uh, your dad started a service to the country he really has to be recognized and held up as for the importance that it is and that's part of the reason i could have had any lawyer on to talk about camp lejeune and what's going on in, in, in the new recent legislation but i wanted to bring to our listeners somebody who not only has served at the highest office law enforcement office in the state of michigan as the uh, michigan attorney general who has a background as a county prosecutor but somebody whose family has served so this isn't isn't just a, a legal issue i can make a few bucks on this is this is something in the cox family dna that we've got to do by right by those who serve in the military and those who've passed through camp lejeune have been really harmed for a long time, and it's not been recognized. Congress has finally gotten around to doing that a little bit. So tell us about the new law and what that does for those who spent 30 days plus at Camp Lejeune during the period of August 1953 through December of
3: 1987. Uh, Well, Jim, what it does for people like me, because that includes me, I, I, I was in Camp Lejeune with a Westpac float. Uh, from the early summer of 1982 until April 15th of 1983 when I got my, got my walking papers. <laughs> so I was discharged. Um, so if you did 30 days, then doesn't have to be consecutive, but if you did 30 days, so you could be in reserves doing training and whether you were a Marine, a sailor, some other armed forces member or a family or a dependent member of the family, if you lived on base or even if you were a base employee, uh, as long as you had 30 days, you know, from February 53 through December 31st in 1987, you're eligible for consideration under this law, and, and it's part of the Camp Lejeune Justice Act of 2022, which President Biden signed into law on August 10th and passed both the House and Senate with strong bipartisan support. And it's 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 a as you know, Jim, being a lawyer. It's not very often that any government entity goes back after 35 years and changes the statute of limitations. Uh, but uh, I think, especially having been at Camp Lejeune during the time, this really cried out uh, and that the Congress and the President responded. So what happened? Should, may, should, should I start with what happened? Yeah, go, go ahead.
0: Let's let's set up how this contamination uh, got, got there and how it impacted uh, those who – had that uh, time of service at Camp Lejeune.
3: Yeah, so anyone who's ever been to Camp Lejeune uh, or that part of North Carolina, or, or, you know, it'd be very similar to Fort Benning in Georgia, I expect, and very similar to Fort Campbell in Kentucky. Uh, But especially in Camp Lejeune, uh, it's a very sandy base. You know, it's, uh, I don't know, 450 square miles uh, along the ocean, Atlantic. And so Camp Lejeune, historically, from the time it was, it, it was put together during World War II, uh, it has a hut, had a hundred shallow groundwater wells, right, that, that fed into eight different water systems. And, uh, and because of the sand and, and I'm, I'm not a, uh, a geologist, but because of some of the unique nature, some of the unique features of the geography there, uh, had this sort of bowl system where if if a toxin got in the water in any of the wells, it would immediately leach across the base. And and so ultimately, what what happened over the the period of time, I and many others were there. There were four main uh, toxins, these deadly chemicals that are recognized by the EPA, recognized by scientists as deathly or, 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 or have high morbid or mortality rates uh, that leaked into the water. There There is, uh, and I wish I could pronounce them, but I'll just tell you the initials. TCE is one of them, PCE. Benzene, which a lot of people know because it's a common byproduct of a variety of oils and gases, as well as vinyl chloride. And so what happened is with the shallow wells, uh, there, was, uh, there was three, four main pollution toxin sources. One was uh, as you can imagine with the spit and polish Marines, one was the ABC one hour dry cleaner on base, which anyone who went there probably, uh, got their dress blues or, you know, their, or their, their dress uniforms done there. And that was right in the, on the main part of base at Lejeune and Tarawa Boulevard. And they, like many other cleaning facilities in the 50s, 60s, 70s, just took their their cleaning fluids and dumped them into the ground.
0: Yeah, this was real common all across the country. Perchloroethylene, that PCE, was the common solvent for dry cleaning. And uh, when it got spent and couldn't clean things anymore, it just got dumped out the back door generally.
3: You know, uh, and you're 100% right, Uh, so many dry cleaning facilities, and this was a huge one, uh, are much like gas stations in terms of the amount of toxins they produce, and so uh, and, and so from the industrial solvents, which, which can tear, uh, excuse me, contain the, the toxins, TCE and PCE. And this particular, for anyone who had ever been on the base, this dry cleaner was right by Tarawa Terrace. You know, for Marines, uh, the, the Battle of Tarawa was very, uh, it was a very key battle, you know, in the early parts of World War II. And so this Tarawa Terrace was built and that's one of the primary facilities of base housing. And, uh, so, Connected to it was the Terrace water plant, and in the same area they also had underground storage tanks, which would have other degreasing solvents, you know, that they use for cleaning everything from trucks to solvents from cleaning your weapons. You know, when I was there for my M16, or folks before me with their M1s, and that was located nearby at that point for anyone who's familiar. And so um, in these the toxins there bled in into the other water plants that there was a Holcomb River, excuse me, Holcomb Boulevard water plant where the host, the base hospital was. Uh, and, and these three main plants fed, uh, fed not only listed base housing, fed the barracks where I was, where, you know, unmarried Marines would stay, the administrative office schools, recreational areas, and ultimately a combination of metal cleaners, gas and fuel, That There's an estimate at one time in the groundwater, by the late 80s, there was a million gallon lake of fuel in the groundwater. Yeah,
0: this is is just, uh, it's been known, you said 1980s, it's been known for, what do we have, about 40 years now that this stuff is there. It took a long time for VA to say, well, maybe some of your disabilities are related to these exposures to benzene and tce and pce congress kind of had to get involved to get va to to pay attention and create some presumptive diseases out of that but what they did in the in the camp lejeune justice act of 2020 which is kind of buried in the pact act uh commonly talked about as the burn pit legislation of of this year is they gave those who are exposed kind of a new right to sue again talk to us about that
3: sure so what they did is very unusual uh and i credit president biden and and both democrats and republicans in the house and senate they they created given the passage of time they created a two-year window which runs from august 10th of this year 2022 until august 10th of 2024 and if you spent 30 days or more and you had one of these presumptive diseases, uh, as you pointed out, Jim, uh, throughout really starting the eighties when Camp Lejeune became a uh, a superfund site until there there was numerous studies. There's a group of there's a branch of the Department of Health and Human Services called the ATTSR, which conducted five different research samples. And they do things like compare Marines who went through Camp Lejeune versus Camp Pendleton or, or with other camps or with the general populace and, and what they found is 14, actually it's 15 presumptive diseases and so if you had one of these diseases and it's a big list but I'll, I'll try and get to it, if you had breast cancer especially male breast cancer, kidney cancer, multiple myeloma renal toxicity which is uh, named a name for a body of kidney diseases female infertility Infertility, sclerodoma, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, liver cancer, miscarriages, lung cancer, bladder cancer, leukemia, myelodysplastic syndromes, Parkinson's, hepatitis steatosis, esophageal cancer, and neurobehavioral uh, spinal issues. Uh, you 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 suffer from a presumptive disease. What does that mean? That means it's no less likely than any other cause that the water, if you spent at least 30 days at Camp Lejeune, that the water at Camp Lejeune was so contaminated, loaded with toxins, that it, it is a significant cause of your disease.
0: Yeah, this is a huge issue. I'm a veteran's disability lawyer, as Mike knows, and I deal with the VA. He deals with the court system. Uh, but this concept of a presumptive condition means I don't have to prove up my individual exposure and have an, uh, an expert doctor saying, uh, yeah, this uh, leukemia is related to this because the exposure was that. Because of those studies that the government's already done, it's presuming you had enough exposure if you had that disease. So that's a huge evidence burden lifted from the the veteran or the litigant, isn't it, Mike? It,
3: it, absolutely. It, it's, it's as if a defendant confessed. So the government's confessed on these, uh, 15 different serious illnesses, uh, that can't caused cause your problem if you spend at least 31 days there. And then Jim, there's another group of 15 more that are likely, uh, where it's likely that we don't have the same amount of proofs, but I and other lawyers working on this across the country we're, with doctors and epidemiologists are putting together the evidence that we think that ultimately uh the Department of Navy and Department of Justice will admit that there were many other diseases caused by that. So so what's the takeaway? The takeaway is if if you were at campus June for one of the thirty one for more than thirty one days from fifty three to eighty seven and, and you have a serious illness, you should talk to someone. Talk to me, talk to my folks, great, but talk to somebody and uh have it checked out. Um Well no I wanna call. I
0: wanna back up for a minute because you mentioned it uh that the office of naval justice or somebody i don't know who the hell it is yeah. talk about how this claim process that's only open for two years and then yeah. you're allowed to sue the government talk how that process is going to work if we even know
3: well it, it's it's kind of funny. as i said this has never happened before so a lot of it we're working with a blank slate uh, but what any of your listeners can do is they go to a lawyer And, and of course, we'd love you to come to us, but go to a lawyer. uh, And uh, that lawyer, because these are contingency cases. They don't cost you any money. And go to the lawyer. uh, They'll need your DD-214, medical records, which are really pretty easy to get these, you know, with a release. And what the lawyer will do is get a doctor to take a look at it, see if it meets one of the criterias of the either presumptive diseases or the likely diseases. And then the lawyer will put together what's called an administrative claim. And that will go to the, the the Department of Navy JAG Corps out of Charleston, South Carolina. And they're also, as you can imagine, because uh, there's probably going to be tens of thousands of claims, the Department of Justice is going to help out. And they have six months to decide to make a settlement with you or deny your claim. If they Once they deny your claim within six months, then you have a right to go to federal court in North Carolina and seek your day in court. And quite frankly, uh, it is set up to take care of veterans. President Biden and the Republicans and Democrats in the Congress have set this up not to say no and not to give away taxpayer money needlessly, but to say yes to those who have been legitimately damaged, which is unquestioned. And so that's 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 the so, so I want to, I want,
0: yeah and it's much more complicated than that but I want to draw some uh, distinctions for folks because our veteran radio listeners are you know pretty savvy and they're used to VA claims and they're used to claims that take years and right. and have a very complicated process uh, administratively but this is more streamlined isn't it it's going and it's not going to the VA. It's a totally different channel. It's going off to the Navy, and Navy D- JAG or DOJ is going to make this decision. And if they don't make the decision a- after six months, that gives you the right to sue. Is that how it works?
3: You hit it exactly, Jim. And, and it is extremely streamlined. Uh, you know, it is set up, like I said, to take care of the folks who have been harmed.
2: Now, and I
0: want. Is- I want. Wait a minute. I want to go back though to now. You have the right to sue. You got to have the right set of guy, guys, or firm, or gals, who are going to go to North Carolina and sue. So, do I have to get a lawyer in North Carolina because that's where I might end up having to sue?
3: Well, I have a partner in North Carolina, but no, as you know, Jim, lawyers travel across the country and try cases all over the all over the country. So, I, I've done 150 jury trials, and for any of the folks. Of your listeners in Michigan, I just led the $490 million settlement against uh, the University of Michigan uh, for a doctor there who abused athletes. Uh, so, I, but you, you get a, a, a veteran trial lawyer who can go down to North Carolina and fight for you. Like I said, I, I have a partner we've team, we're teamed up with in, a North Carolina lawyer. It's always help, helpful to have someone from the home court. Oh, absolutely, yeah. But uh, but the, but it, it but ultimately, as, as any listeners can understand, the federal government does not want to try all the cases, right? Uh, because juries, when they when they see uh, when they see what's going on, what happened to people, and and the poisoning, literally the poisoning of our veterans. Uh, you know, th- that's not a, that's not a day in court where a government lawyer wants to be in court that day. Uh, so I, I can't, gu- we can't make guarantees, obviously. But this, the, the, the drafters of this legislation, uh, thought clearly, and quite frankly, the Department of Justice and the Department of Navy went along with this. They didn't try and fight it and veto it. And uh, it 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 is streamlined to get back to your initial point. It is really streamlined to take care of this peculiar problem of the Camp Lejeune veterans.
0: And, and Mike, uh, some people see these TV ads about class action lawyers on everything you can think about. For, um, but these are This is not a class action lawsuit, is it? These are. If I understand it right, what you've told us, these are individual claims with individual lawsuits that'll have to be brought.
3: Absolutely, so in in University of Michigan, I had 230 individual clients. Each one of those people controlled their own case and agreed to the settlement. It's the same thing here. Your case is your case. You're not tied to any other veteran. And as a lawyer, whether it's me or someone else, we have to represent you individually and look out for your best interest. And so this is not some class action dodge or scam. This is all about you have control of your case, you, the, the lawyer works for you, and this is about you getting your day in court and or justice through a settlement.
0: Let me ask you a question that I, you probably get uh, from the clients who are reaching out to you, and, and that goes along the lines of, hey, I, I currently have VA benefits. If I file a claim through uh, this Camp Lejeune Justice Act, and it, it proceeds and I'm successful, how does that impact my future VA benefits?
3: Sure. First and foremost, uh, there's two different provisions of the Camp and Justice Act which say that you can't be in any worse place than before you file, meaning uh, you can't be punished by the VA for filing a claim. Uh, there may be an offset that can happen, uh, but as you know, Jim, uh, VA benefits are are more circumscribed than a civil lawsuit so for instance uh a, a va benefits don't take into account impacts on your family or loss of consortium things of that that would normally come up in a civil jury trial and so therefore the the amounts and types of damages you can recover are broader in a lawsuit than they are in the va setting and so the bottom line is, more than likely, if 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 you have a valid claim and you're impacted, this will be a supplement to your VA benefits, but it certainly will not be a detriment.
0: Well, I find that really interesting. I've seen all these ads on TV about, uh, were you a Marine? Were you at Camp Lejeune? Call me for your benefits. Uh, you may have some new things. So I think it's important to pick a lawyer if you're going to use a lawyer, uh who understands the Marine Corps and I can recommend Mike Cox for that and who has experience in actually bringing big cases uh, on. That's a kind of a whole new specialty of itself. So I hope you've enjoyed these uh, diverse interviews that we brought to you today. We can't do this work without our sponsors and I want to thank again NVBDC uh, the premier company on certified disabled and veteran owned businesses and our VSOs like the Vietnam Veterans of America, Charles S. Kettles chapter, the VFW Graf O'Hara post, and the American Legion Erwin Preskin post, also in Ann Arbor. Without them, we can't do this work. And follow us on Facebook at Veterans Radio. Go to veteransradio.net. You can get these longer interviews that we post as podcasts there. And uh, as always... We want to wish you a Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. And until next time, when we come back on Veterans Radio and, and Dale will be hosting the next show, I think we've got a lot of interesting information for you. It's been a heck of a year. When we look at it in hindsight and review it, we always end up surprising ourselves about all the great interviews and all the great information we've brought to the veterans of the United States through this radio program on Veterans
2: Radio. And until next time, You are dismissed.